Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. We have a behemoth of an episode tonight, featuring the final stories of this year's Bram Stoker Awards. So, other than to remind you of our contest to win your very own copy of Dracula Daily, which I mentioned last week, and which is now live on our social channels, we are going to dive straight into our fiction. Our first Bram Stoker Award-nominated story this evening comes from someone whose other Stoker-nominated story we heard last week, Anna Taborska. Anna Taborska writes horror stories and screenplays. Her body of work includes three short story collections, Bloody Britain, Shadow Cats, and For Those Who Dream Monsters, recipient of the Dracula Society's Children of the Night Award. Her work has been nominated thrice for a British Fantasy Award and for a Bram Stoker Award five times. Anna has also directed five films, including award-winning drama The Rain Has Stopped and worked on 20 other film and TV productions, such as the BBC PBS series Auschwitz, Inside the Nazi State. Learn more about Anna at her website and IMDb page. Links are in the show notes. Children of the Night, join me for Anna Taborska's A Song for Barnaby Jones, first published in 2022 
by Zagava. Barnaby Jones was a good man, a gentle man, a lonely man. Providence had not given him a pretty face nor a witty turn of phrase. He went about his business calmly, with no fuss, with a quiet determination common to those who have learnt to expect neither support nor approval from the outside world. Nobody cared about Barnaby Jones. Barnaby left school with reasonable grades. He took up work at the local post office sorting other people's mail. He looked in wonder at the colourful postcards from faraway places. Barnaby never got any mail of his own. Barnaby's mother was a quiet, sad woman. Barnaby had spent his earliest childhood trying to make her smile, but he found that his efforts only made him sad and her sadder. After she died, Barnaby sold her house and moved to the city. He got a job as a porter in the tower block in which he lived. During the day, he distributed the post delivered by the postman, answered questions and helped residents unblock drains. Once a week he worked the night shift. He sat in the little porter's room near the entry door to the building and listened to the police sirens outside the window. The children in the tower block laughed at Barnaby, and the adults whispered behind his back. Some of them complained to the manager of the block, saying that Barnaby was strange and that he weirded them out. The manager decided that perhaps it was time for Barnaby to move on. Barnaby drifted from town to town, from village to village. But every place he went was the same. The children laughed and the adults dragged them away, whispering vile things that Barnaby tried not to hear. After years of wandering, Barnaby came to a small, quiet village. He was about to move on when he saw the gatehouse. It stood slightly crooked, a little unsteady, but proud, a sentinel of bricks, mortar and timber guarding the village cemetery beyond. A sign outside the gatehouse read, For Rent, and a sign in the window said, Caretaker Wanted. Barnaby had found his place. The gatehouse was full of noises. By day the wind sighed through its nooks and crannies, and the sound of birdsong floated in through the open window. At night the wind reached a higher pitch, whistling a lullaby as Barnaby lay in his narrow bed. When the wind paused for a moment, 
Barnaby was sure that he heard the patter of footsteps running through the house. He lay awake and listened, and thought that he could make out sighs and whispers, murmurs, and a soft scratching. The first few nights he got up to investigate, but the sounds would always cease as soon as he put on the bedside lamp or took a step out of his bed. After a while, Barnaby found that the noises did not bother him. They actually gave him solace, as though he were not alone after all, as though someone, something, were watching over him and his gatehouse as he slept. Some nights, when he lay very still, he could swear he heard something akin to a contented purring near his bed. When he pulled back the bedsheets in the morning and peered into the darkness under his bed, he saw nothing and heard nothing. Barnaby's curiosity got the better of him, and he decided to dedicate an hour each day to a thorough inspection of the gatehouse. During the day, he tended to the graves, always careful not to catch the eye of visiting relatives, so as not to attract their scorn and possible eviction from his home. In the evening, once he'd locked the cemetery gate over which he lived, he took a torch or a candle and passed through the old unused fireplace in his room into the chambers, corridors and passageways that reached right down into the bowels of the earth beneath the gatehouse. The musty smell did not bother him, and he found old catacombs with some neatly laid-out human skulls and bones, and some dark spaces which even the light he was carrying could not penetrate. Sometimes he saw frightened eyes shining briefly in the darkness, but they were gone so fast that he never saw their owners. After one such excursion, when Barnaby had ventured particularly far into the tunnels beneath the gatehouse and startled a large group of pairs of shining eyes, he retreated to bed with the uneasy feeling that perhaps he had gone too far. Indeed, that night there was a stifling, uncomfortable silence in the house. There was no scratching, no footsteps, sighs, whines or purring. None of the things that Barnaby had come to know as calming and reassuring, none of the things that he had come to associate with being safe and protected that told him that he could sleep without fear in the knowledge that creatures and forces incomprehensible to him would see to it that no harm came to him in the dead of night. Barnaby tossed and turned for hours, falling into a fitful and unsatisfactory sleep only as the first light of dawn broke along the horizon. He overslept and was late opening the gate. He could do nothing to avoid the scornful and accusatory eyes of angry relatives peering through the iron rungs of the large gate, disappointed and irate at being denied access to their dead because of the large, ungainly, ill-proportioned man who now cowered before them on the other side of the gate, jangling his keys. Barnaby scuttled back into the gatehouse and spent the rest of the day wandering through its underbelly, looking for whatever had lived there in peace until he had scared it away. He didn't dare go as far as he had the day before, and wondered how the night creatures must have felt when he penetrated their farthermost retreat. Hunted? Persecuted? Perhaps they thought he wanted to rout them out and banish them from their ancient home, or destroy them.
The soft, earthy, welcoming places under the gatehouse now seemed cold and hostile. Barnaby ran back to his room above ground, above the gate, and tried to send himself off to sleep with a bottle of whiskey. When he could no longer sit up, he slumped on his bed and dozed off for a few minutes. But the suffocating, unnatural silence soon woke him and he cried into his pillow. The next day he got up early and opened the cemetery gate, afraid of the relatives and of what any complaints to the cemetery authorities might mean for his future in the gatehouse. Then he went back to his room and spent the rest of the day hunched in a chair. He didn't go through the fireplace and under the gatehouse again, and he didn't sleep. He sat up all night, listening out for the night creatures and hoping for their return. This went on for days. Barnaby came out of his room twice a day, to unlock the cemetery gate in the morning and to lock it in the evening. Weeds started to grow around the graves in the village cemetery and people started to talk. Finally, Barnaby could stand the nighttime silence no more. It was three in the morning when Barnaby decided to go back through the fireplace into the dark heart of the gatehouse. His torch battery had run out, and his only remaining candle was too short to take far without burning himself. So he lit a gas lamp which stood in the corner of his room, filled a large bowl with milk, and stepped through the fireplace into the darkness. He went as far as he could without actually entering the chamber in which he had frightened the large group of night creatures and put down the bowl of milk. He stood tall, for this was a part of the underworld where a large man could stand upright, and called out into the night, I brought you some milk. I'm sorry I frightened you. I'm sorry I came into your home uninvited and disturbed you. I would like you to come back. I welcome you. Please come back. I thank you for having welcomed me into the gatehouse, and I want it to continue being your home just as it is mine. He turned to go and walked several steps towards the exit. Then he turned back, hoping to catch a glimpse of strange almond-shaped eyes glowing in the darkness, or the vaguest sound of claws scrabbling on stone but there was only silence and shadow. I'm going now, he added uncertainly, and went. Barnaby lay awake in the darkness, but this time he felt a glimmer of hope. He got up especially early the following morning and slipped through the fireplace into the underground corridors. He wanted to run all the way to the place where he'd left the bowl of milk, but he didn't want his gas lamp to go out, and he didn't want to startle any creatures that might be sleeping in the cracks of the walls or in the floor. He forced himself to tread gently, and finally came to where he had left the bowl. To his surprise, it was no longer there. The heavy bowl had disappeared. Barnaby looked around quietly, and finally found it in a small chamber leading off the larger one where he'd left it. The bowl was empty. Barnaby felt a twinge of excitement in his stomach. Probably for the first time in his life, Barnaby wanted to jump for joy. Something akin to a smile, large and lopsided, and a little shy, 
twisted his mouth. He forced himself to be calm, picked up the bowl, looked around gingerly, not that he expected to see anything, and went back to open the cemetery gate. For the next few days, Barnaby put a bowl of milk out in the tunnels under the gatehouse, each time a little closer to his room. Every day he retrieved the empty bowl, his excitement growing as he came closer to winning back his friends. Finally the night came when Barnaby placed the bowl of milk inside the fireplace connecting his world to that of the night creatures. He lay in bed and switched off the light. After a while his heart soared as he heard tentative footsteps scratching and snuffling in the fireplace. Barnaby closed his eyes and listened as the creatures drank the milk and came quietly into his room. As Barnaby fell into a deep, happy and undisturbed sleep, the night creatures scuttled, slid, slithered and crawled about his room. Claws and scales scratched on the floor, tongues flicked and fangs glistened, red, yellow and green eyes twinkled brightly, snouts whined, murmured, whispered, growled and purred as the night creatures formed a circle around the bed and sang a song for Barnaby Jones. Safe slept Barnaby, safe in the knowledge that he was home, that he had special friends who watched over him in the dead of night. When he woke up in the morning to birdsong coming through the window of his empty room, his heart was still soaring, his shoulders were no longer stooped, and his tread was light as he went to open the cemetery gates. Barnaby was no longer a lonely man. Somebody cared about Barnaby Jones. That was Anna Taborska's A Song for Barnaby Jones, as read by Graham Dunlop. Graham Dunlop is a software solution architect and voice actor living in Melbourne, Australia. He is the co-editor of the fantasy podcast Podcastle and used to host the YA podcast Cast of Wonders. He occasionally tweets as at Kibitzer on Twitter. Thank you, Graham. Our second Stoker-nominated tale comes from J.A.W. McCarthy. J.A.W. McCarthy's short fiction has appeared in numerous publications, including Lamplight, Apparition Lit, Places We Fear to Tread by Cemetery Gates, Oculus Sinister, and Nightscript 5. She lives with her husband and assistant cats in the Pacific Northwest. You can call her Jen on Twitter and Instagram at J.A.W. McCarthy and find out more at jawmccarthy.com. Listen with me, children of the night, to J.A.W. McCarthy's The Only Thing Different Will Be the Body, first published in the anthology A Woman Built by Man by Cemetery Gates Media, February 2022.
My great-grandfather was an angel. When I told men that, they laughed. When I made it clear that I was serious, they looked at me like I was crazy. For some, their eyes took on a blood flush sheen as they calculated the kind of fuck I'd be. Those men were the typical ones. The wrong ones. The best ones, the almost maybe, please be the right ones, dared me to prove it. Tonight's man, Aaron, as he introduced himself upon pouring my third drink, grinned. Lips parted on the edge of a laugh when I told him. His smile twitched, then flattened, as I let the silence hang in the air between us. Prosecco sat uncorked, warming in the tepid swirl of bodies around us. Marshmallowy perfume and patchouli-heavy body spray muddied the rich spice of the bourbon in front of me. Aaron's eyes wandered somewhere beyond my head, perhaps assessing who might have heard my declaration, and if they would judge his response. Still, I said nothing. Aaron cleared his throat. Define angel, he said with a hint of a grin still hanging on. A celestial being, fallen from heaven. This is what I told all the men, what they wanted to hear. One in a million, the rare angel that tumbled from the clouds due to a terrible accident or perceived sin. The story changed depending on my mood. Now resigned to a mortal life on earth. Mortal body, mundane worries, with the exception of a ticket straight to heaven, and the possibility of future falls that would equate to eternal life on earth. My angel great-grandfather was raised by a homemaker and a traveling salesman. He met my great-grandmother in church, where she led the choir. He learned to affix doors to mid-sized sedans at a Chrysler plant in Missouri. They had three sons and one daughter, six grandchildren, seven great- But I thought angels don't have, uh, genitals, so they can't reproduce. Aaron said, fiddling with the cups of garnishes lining the bar between us. Mortal body, I reminded him. None of my great-grandfather's descendants were angels, though. It's not something that can be passed down. Angels fall from heaven, but most of them don't know that. Once they enter the Earth's atmosphere, their wings sizzle and shrivel like meat in a frying pan, sliding from their shoulder blades same as a scab or flake of dandruff to be swept into the garbage or rot unnoticed in the dirt, before their human mind finds consciousness. Most spend the entirety of their human lives with no knowledge of their divine lineage, except for a rare few who discover the truth. This was the part of the story, where the guy would make the usual joke about how I must hurt, since I too had fallen from heaven. As stupid as it was, I would laugh because I wanted them to leave with me. Aaron, though, didn't need me to laugh at another lame joke. So when did your great-grandfather find out he was an angel? He asked. Shaking a martini for the woman next to me. He muddled mint and sugar with his other hand, eyes on the glass. So I couldn't tell if he was messing with me or if he was truly interested. He always knew, I said. He liked to lord it over everyone. He got people to do whatever he wanted because they thought he'd take them to heaven with him.
Aaron poured the martini into a glass and topped it off with an olive, then placed it in front of the waiting woman. His eyes lingered on her, his grin devouring her polite thank you. I'd noticed this woman too, comparing her long blonde hair and wide mouth to my own pleasant but unremarkable features. Even in a plain t-shirt, she looked both sophisticated and welcoming, that perfect edge of youth that made her an appealing and acceptable kind of vulnerable. Despite my age, I still got carded, but my face displayed the kind of youthfulness that made men nervous. They usually don't want that kind of attention. Why did people believe him, your grandfather? Aaron asked me, still watching the woman as she took her first sip. She didn't need a good story to hold a man's attention. His wings grew back. Oh yeah? That got him. Now his eyes were back on me, hands busy stirring bourbon into the muddled mint and sugar. You got a picture of him? I have something better. Aaron raised an eyebrow, his mouth taking on a curious, if skeptical, little grin. There was a glint in his eyes, that wet look of blood vessels swelling with anticipation. The woman next to me receded into the crowd. Prove it, he said. On his deathbed, clutching his daughter's hand so tight, she thought he'd pull her skin right off if she so much as twitched, my great-grandfather said. Don't you worry, sweetheart. I promise this isn't the end of me. I will come back. The only thing different will be my body. After his human form expired, the family waited for him to ascend before their eyes, anticipating a majestic set of wings to unfurl as his body was sucked into the heavens in a gold shaft of light. Instead, he lay there on his sweat-stained sheets, jaw dropped open for three days before the family finally buried him. My grandmother, his daughter, was the one who cut the stunted, curled wings from his back. She didn't see how those featherless limbs of webbed flesh over knobby-boned armature could fly her father all the way to heaven. But his deathbed promise cast a shadow over her every waking moment. To her brother's horror, she tried to burn the wings in the backyard. But the boys were able to save one of them. They made it into a relic. This holy remnant of their father, no bigger than a child's arm. It was about as majestic as the newspaper-lined apple crate they kept it in. The wing was passed down to the next generation, a token of the power in our bloodline. A power that my grandmother often reminded was not actually in our blood. He can't come back. She would say, sadness, caution, and dread in her tone, depending on her mood that day. She would elaborate, and she never said such words in front of her brothers. The wing withered to nothing more than a slab of jerky on bone, much like my great-grandfather's earthly form in the ground. His sons and grandsons waited for him to return, but the babies born into our family never landed bruised and ready to claim their glory. Generations of men rubbed that desiccated bit of angel flesh against their lips, eyes wet and feverish with prayer. They took their shirts off in front of the mirrors and made their wives feel for stray nubs of bone sprung from their shoulder blades every night before bed. The women sighed and kept their secrets. After the expectations dwindled, Half of my family became even more fervently religious, sure that the angel would grace us with his presence again, if we could just be more patient. If we could just believe. The other half, 
the women, swore my great-grandfather was proof there is no God, and never set foot in a church again. As Aaron and I stood in my storage unit, I held the wooden box aloft, revealing the mummified length of flesh and bone atop a crumpled newspaper. Jesus, he exclaimed, taking a step back. His face was pinched as if anticipating the pungent odor of decay instead of the mild mustiness that dissipated in the air between us. All the men reacted this way upon seeing the angel wing, but for most it was because they didn't believe there would actually be anything in the box. Even after I told them the story of how the wing came into my possession, these men still believed that it was an elaborate joke or delusion they needed to humor in order to get in my pants. You're shitting me, right? That's like a seagull wing or something. Do you see any feathers? I asked. Aaron approached the box again, daring a peek inside. I could admit that even though the wing wasn't much more than a few scraps of leather on bone, it was still alarming to see. A piece of a corpse carelessly preserved by time and a lazy hand. You got me, he said. A tight-lipped little grin surfacing as he shook his head. That's like something you found on the beach. I know it. Then why did you come here? I waited a beat, but he didn't answer. None of them were ever willing to say it out loud. The men in my family believed they'd become angels too, if they consumed a piece of my great-grandfather. I said, setting the box back in the antique oak dresser that had also been in my family for generations. I leaned against the wall and watched Aaron's chin recede into his neck in a look of disgust and disbelief. I thought you said it can't be passed down. That didn't stop them. Arms crossed, Aaron leaned over the box again. So they actually ate pieces of this. Your great-grandfather. Like cannibalism? I joined him in peering into the box, lingering as if we both expected our faces to light up with a reflected glow. I never saw that happen myself, but I knew some men did by the way they reacted. That prick of recognition, then the gobsmacked gloss, when the promise of heaven unfolded in their widening eyes. That moment when the unthinkable became not only palatable, but paramount. See that there? All those gaps? I said, pointing out the snippets of naked bone between islands of tattered leather. What was left of the flesh was torn and pocked, a veil of desiccated skin and muscle. At one time, carefully pinched and picked by fingers searching for glory. I could imagine what it had felt like between the teeth of the men in my family. Muller's grinding meat that in the end gave the lucky ones nothing more than a stomach ache and a bruised ego. That's where they tore a piece off, I said. Aaron's grimace resurfaced. And they ate it? Seriously? You know how Victorians used to eat Egyptian mummies because they thought they could cure illnesses? It's just meat. You're fucking with me, he said. Try it. Why should I? I offered him my best coy smile. Maybe it's you. Maybe you're an angel. Aaron laughed. What about you? He asked, closing in on me. He ran gentle fingers against my temple, pushing my hair from my face. Did you try it? Are you an angel? Sadly, no, I'm not an angel.
He leaned in to kiss me, but I pressed my lips together and turned away. Not until you try it. You're serious. Stepping back, he turned from me, his eyes traveling the confines of the storage unit, the heavy furniture lining the walls, the harsh fluorescent light overhead, the metal door I'd rolled back down. I wondered if he was cataloging every heavy lamp and book-laden box within his reach. Anything that could do some damage, no matter how temporary. What was I thinking? He asked, and gave a little shrug of a laugh. I knew the regret was setting in. The realization he should have kept his attention on the beautiful blonde at the bar instead of leaving with me. I thought that was just a story to get me to, I mean, is this your idea of a game? I don't know why the fuck I came here. Consider yourself lucky you don't have to think about it. I reached into the wooden box and stroked the length of the wing, making sure Aaron's eyes followed as I pulled a flap of dry brown flesh between my fingers. There wasn't much left to choose from. Just a few little pieces of petrified skin and muscle clinging to gray bone. It's simple, really, I said. You could spend your life thinking you're nothing special. Wasting every opportunity because you were never tested. But this? I tugged on the flesh. This could change everything. If you're an angel, that's power. That's a ticket to heaven. That's eternal life. Isn't that what we all want? Aaron didn't say anything. He continued to stare at the wing in the box skepticism tightening his brow and jaw. But in his eyes, that was different. His pale eyes shone with anticipation. Just a spark. But it was enough. Neurons firing, daring his fingers to touch that artifact of wizened skin and bone I had. That promise, no matter how ridiculous, was ready to be tested with a why not. He was almost there. You want more proof? I asked. I opened the top drawer of the oak dresser and pulled out the photo I kept under the sweatshirt and blouses that hadn't been fashionable in decades. It was the only photo I kept. The only photo I hadn't burned. Aaron took it and turned it over in his hand. Papa and Hilda, 1947. Written on the back in spiky cursive. I couldn't remember which of the boys had written that. In the faded black and white portrait, middle-aged Papa sat on the back steps of the family home his 17-year-old daughter perched on the step below him. While his limbs were spread, relaxed, a grin, almost smug, on his trim face. Hilda kept her arms and legs pinned tight to her center, ankles crossed, hands clutching her elbows. Her smile was forced, ready to break if her brother didn't hurry up and snap that fucking photo already. One of her father's wings was tucked behind his back, only the tip visible. The other stunted, featherless wing was wrapped around his daughter. That webbed flesh, speckled with red and blue veins. The skin between the armature of bones so thin you can see the sunlight right through it. It had always disgusted Hilda. His touch had been even worse. A pair of extra limbs he could take out and stow away at will. Even if he merely brushed past her in the hall, his odor of pipe tobacco and sour milk would cling to her hair and clothes and he would ensconce himself in the bathroom when all she wanted was to wash the smell off of her. Hilda, he would call from behind the always cracked open door. 
Her brothers would laugh as she grabbed the washcloth, the tears already starting. Aaron looked from the photo to me and then back again. The, the woman. That's my grandmother. Y you look just like her. He gave a little chuckle before handing the photo back to me. If this is real, shouldn't this be in a museum or something? Shouldn't your family be famous? It's better that no one believes us. Nodding, he turned so we stood side by side. The dresser and the wing in its box behind us. His knuckles grazed my thigh, fingers lingering on the way down. I know why I came here. He let the admission hang as if it was an intimate confession. A vulnerability that was supposed to draw me closer to him. So, why did you invite me? Why do you care if I believe you? I pushed my thigh against his, just light enough to make him question if the movement was intentional or clumsy. Over the years, I'd learned you always have to give a little to survive. I saw something in you. I thought you might be the one. An angel. Aaron raised an eyebrow. There was that glint in his eyes again, blood moving, calculating, hope restored. You do this with a lot of guys? Every man I meet. This time I kissed him, my hands on his shoulders, the sweet hot spice of bourbon still on our tongues. His hands found my waist and he pulled me into him, thumbs pressing down to my hip bones as if he was worried I might change my mind. At the bar, it had been impossible to smell anything over the suffocating blanket of dozens of colognes and perfumes. The hot breath of beer and charcuterie every time the patrons around me opened their mouths. Maybe a hint of B.O. when someone brushed by me on the way to the bathroom. Though only inches from me as we talked, I hadn't been able to smell Aaron from behind the miasma. Now alone, skin on skin, I got what I needed. He smelled of pink hand soap and pocket weed and under that something familiar. The treacly vanilla and spice of pipe tobacco, mildewy towels, the expired milk tang of dried sweat on cooled skin. Lips locked together, I pulled away. I didn't want Aaron to feel me gag. What's wrong? I didn't answer. I gave him another coy smile, then reached into the box and tore free a swatch of shriveled flesh from where the wing once met the body. It came away easily. Not much left to anchor it to the bone. As Aaron watched, I opened my mouth wide and placed the piece of skin on my tongue. He blanched as I made a show of grinding the skin between my teeth. No way, he shrieked. But he didn't look away. The initial disgust on his face turned into the broad lift of excitement. Now the wing was singing, and if there was a glow, Aaron was finally seeing it. He peered into the box again and reached a tentative hand toward the wing. It was when his finger grazed the leather that had happened. The subtle vibration as his limbs stiffened. The recoil of his finger from the length of the flesh he'd chosen. A mixture of repulsion and pain on his face as if the wing had burned him. One, then two fingers sliding right back onto that petrified wing where the lore became overwhelming. The bright pop of a gasp as he realized exactly what he was in the presence of. He folded to it both hands in the box now. There was no blood left in that wing, but its DNA was alive, same as my blood, ready to flow into Aaron as he opened himself up to every possibility. Just a taste, I warned him, 
There's not much left, okay? This time he didn't hesitate as he freed a scrap of petrified flesh from between the radius and ulna. We faced each other, a thread of excitement trilling between us, that sacrament I'd been chasing since Papa died, since I realized what I could do. Just a scrap of old, deluded dead man imbued with more power than any one person, angel or not, should have. That power was now tucked under my tongue, bloated from my saliva, celestial leather pushing the musty blandness of fingernails and dried skin and other benign human detrius against my gums. I leaned into Aaron and kissed him again, tongue pushing against his so he could taste what I had. When he pulled back, I knew he was ready. At my nod, he placed the scrap of angel flesh on his tongue. I watched as that little piece of Papa's body moved around in Aaron's mouth, passed from molar to molar, bisected with great effort, then tested on his tongue. His eyes narrowed as he worked to discern the flavors of rancid meat or dried blood, then widened in surprise when he didn't find either. All of the men had been surprised. Eating a piece of an angel wasn't any more shocking than nibbling on a scab. When Aaron appeared to stop chewing, the whisper of dried flesh between his own bones snuffed out. I opened my mouth and revealed the piece still on my tongue. I made a show of curling it to the back of my throat, then closed my mouth, and clutching the scrap of wing between my molars, made sure he saw me swallow. Eternal life, right? I gave an easy laugh. He grinned and swallowed, too. Fuck! I can't believe I did that, he said after swallowing again. His face flushed with a rush of adrenaline and pride, lust giving way to a different kind of hunger. I glanced back at the box. Eight, maybe nine little flags of skin left. Time would deteriorate them further, reduce what little flesh remained to scraps too tough to chew, but not enough to make anything happen. Not for my needs, anyway. Seeing Aaron's face, the glow as he stood there buzzing, both stunned and elated, assured me that I'd chosen correctly. Do you remember my name? I asked. Huh? Yeah, of course, uh. He paused, eyes dilated, struggling to focus on me as his mind caught up to the subtle changes taking place in his body. Uh, Heidi? Hill? Hill. Fuck, uh, sorry. It's Hillary. Hillary. It's Hilda. I held up the photo again, but he didn't need to see it. As he realized what was happening, the seed had already taken root in his stomach, sprouting in his bloodstream, racing long fingers up his spine to anchor in his shoulder blades. He stumbled backwards, arms crossed, hands reaching toward his back. My name didn't matter. My words didn't matter. Even if, in that moment when he touched the angel wing, he had believed me without reservation. It hadn't occurred to him until now how it would feel to become an angel. Or what an angel really was. Hill, Hill. Hilda, I said. Aaron reached out, grabbing the edge of the oak dresser, fingers flailing desperately toward the wooden box before I pulled it out of his reach. His face was bright red now. Eyes bulging and mouth agape in a silent gasp. He looked like my brother's. Not all of them, just the lucky one. As his shirt bulged behind him, he made a wet gurgling sound and fell to his knees. He looked at me one last time, eyes pleading, 
then went face down on the concrete floor. I spit out the flesh I'd been holding in my mouth and got to work. The first time I'd tasted my father's flesh, all I got was a stomach ache. My brothers wouldn't allow me near the remaining wing after I'd thrown pieces of our father in the fire. But I stole a piece months later after the flesh had dried to leather and it somehow seemed less repulsive. Just a bit of magical jerky, as the Victorians must have thought of those mummies they consumed. Crouched under the basement stairs, I ground the strip of flesh between my teeth and marveled at how it didn't taste like the chicken I'd imagined at best, or the pork fat I'd expected at worst. I swallowed, kept it down, and waited for the wings to erupt from my own shoulder blades. Though I never fully believed I would become an angel, I ate that piece of flesh because it was a satisfying farewell to a man who would have burned his Bible at the thought of a woman ascending into God's graces. I took pleasure in imagining how I would make my brothers wash my wings before I crushed them and took my place in paradise, leaving them to cry and plead in my shadow. The promise died that night with a dose of pepso-ginger, as quietly and inauspiciously as my father had expired in his bed. My brothers intended to wait until they deemed an adequate period of mourning had passed, but the temptation to taste the wing broke them before their black suits were tucked back into the closet. Theodore, the oldest, tasted first, not noticing I'd torn a piece from the tattered edge of where the wing had been bound to our father's body. I watched from the kitchen window as the boys formed a circle in the backyard. Thomas and Harold's faces stretched in awe and reverence as they waited for Theodore to bathe them in his heavenly birthright. When Theodore doubled over in pain, the other boys dropped to their knees, palms raised to the sky. Theodore died five days later in our father's bed, tears in his eyes as he told me how the body should have been his. Despite what they'd witnessed, my two remaining brothers repeated the ritual a month after Theodore's death, this time prefacing their communion with hours of feverish prayer in the basement before consuming their pieces. Thomas died within hours. Harold, experiencing neither illness nor glory, went back and ate a full quarter of the wing. Salvation or suicide. I wasn't sure. To my surprise, Harold survived. I thought he'd become ill like I had but the only ache he experienced was from his shoulder blade stretching into the armature of wings. Once the pain of rapidly expanding bone and skin subsided, he took on a wide-eyed glow and talked of his impending fame and fortune. We would go on the road, he said, and I would receive the honor of attending to his needs while he was feted in churches and adored in Hollywood. Finally, a purpose for you, Hilda. He crowed, hovering to assure that I cooked a meal worthy of his new magnificence. He demanded I save his sheets. We'll sell them as holy artifacts. But I couldn't bear the smells of lukewarm milk and the oily skin that permeated every room of the house. When Harold wrapped his wing around me, I was in our father's embrace, that veiny webbed flesh marking me, making me his. One night, when he slept, I took a kitchen knife to my brother's throat, ready and willing to suffer eternal damnation for killing an angel. After Harold took his last breath, I cut his wings from his back. This time, instead of throwing them in the fire, I stored them in the basement, in their own apple crate next to our father's. Those wings, once mummified, called to me. Leather and bone sang in the basement, what I imagined every man in my family must have heard. 
and it didn't take long for me to answer. I tasted, and with enough tastes, ceased to become ill, not even with a stomach ache. In the first year, I ate an entire wing. From that first bite forward, I never aged a day. Aaron's wings emerged in a matter of hours, buds bursting abruptly through the back of his shirt while he bled out from his severed throat on the floor of my storage unit. I sliced the buds open and unfolded the wings as delicate and firmly seated as ingrown hair. If I'd let him live, if I'd somehow convinced him to keep his transformation a secret and stay with me, live with me, those wings would have grown bigger, perhaps even eclipsing the size of a child's arm. At the time of his death, they would yield enough meat so that I could go longer between these kills. But I didn't have that kind of time. Besides, I'd already lived with an angel. I'd already lived through the ego and the injustice and the all-consuming ferocious hunger for power. Being of service to them, Papa and Harold, was enough for all my lifetimes. I never thought I'd be seeking out these men, hoping to invite one of these terrible angels into my life. But once I took my brother's wings and discovered what they could do for me, I never consumed my father's flesh again. I only have to touch what's left of him in these demonstrations to lure new men, new angels, on which to feed. Papa has served his purpose in a way he never intended. With these new angels, I have learned to use the primal urge to mate to my advantage, and I've gotten very good with a knife. After a few strategic cuts, Aaron's wings disarticulate with the satisfying pop of cartilage releasing bone. The sour milk and mildewy odors eclipse that of the blood almost immediately. I never understood why the pipe tobacco lingers, even in men who have never smoked. I guess that's a piece of my father, stubbornly living on in every angel that's awoken upon consuming him. As I drained the wings over a bucket, I gripped the bone beneath the skin and remembered how Papa's wing had felt around my shoulders how my brother Harold's wings had tried to make the same marks. I can do this. Finding angels, killing them, taking their wings, forever. But as my father said, each time the only thing different is the body, and I can't find all the bodies. There are other angels out there, falling to earth every day, and I know there are other women out there like me, other women who haven't lost sight of the goal who won't get lost in the unexpected bonus of eternal life. There have to be. That was J.A.W. McCarthy's the only thing different will be the body, as read by Danielle Hewitt. Danielle is recording out of New Bedford, Massachusetts, where the people can be just as scary as any horror story. When she isn't recording, she tends to the two small children living in her house. They just won't stop screaming at night. Danielle is a graphic designer by trade, spending most nights photoshopping horror scenes out of your nightmares. Thank you, Danielle. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The third of our Stoker-nominated tales comes to us from Aaron Dries. Author, artist, and filmmaker, Aaron Dries was born and raised in New South Wales, Australia. His novels include the award-winning House of Sighs, The Fallen Boys, A Place for Sinners, Where the Dead Go to Die with Mark Allen Gunnels, plus the novellas The Sound of His Bones Breaking, and the Australian Shadows Award, Ditmar Shirley Jackson Award nominated Dirty Heads. Cut to Care, a collection of little hurts, released in 2022, is his first collection of short stories and was described by author Paul Tremblay as heartbreaking, frightening, and all too real. Aaron Dries is one host of the popular podcast Let the Cat In and also co-founded Elsewhere Here Productions. His fiction, art, and films have been celebrated domestically and abroad. Most recently, in addition to his Bram Stoker Award nomination for The Tale We'll Hear Tonight, he won an Orialis Award for his horror novella, Kookaburra Cruel. Drop him a line at AaronDries.com, on Twitter at AaronDries or TikTok at AaronDries underscore writer. Join me, children of the night, for Aaron Dries' Nona Doesn't Dance. First published in Cut to Care, a collection of little hurts, November 2022. Sky road after sky road revealed billboards in the toxic haze. Only the advertisements had changed since last time. Even at eight years old, Sienna knew how quick the world was to update itself. 
to find something new to sell and distract itself with. They hadn't visited Nona in twelve months, almost three whole school trimesters. Class was back-to-back hours of information processing, demands to learn it, remember it, recycle it. Monday to Friday, one big countdown to the weekend. Those gaps between trips to her grandmother, however, stretched without comparison. They were the empty spaces, and sometimes, in them, Sienna forgot about Nona altogether. Guilt cures weren't advertised on the billboards they flew past. But it was Christmas, as Da reminded them before loading up the cruiser, like she could forget. Christmas meant you do what you must, even if you don't want to. And I don't want to, Sienna conceded. Then, before then, now. Nona always smelled funny when they went to her pot after the show, like dried spit on a pillow. Then there was the home itself, with its long corridors and security drones levitating from room to room to ensure nobody had fallen from their beds. That happened. People even died. Sienna processed this fact, and others in articles at school. Getting old made no sense, and she often wondered what Nona did to deserve it. Another billboard. Another. They shone green and red, colors Sienna enjoyed when viewed independently, but made her queasy when together, as though she'd scoffed too many sweet emulators in one sitting, regardless of her mother's cautions. Ma was always at her. Do this. Don't do that. You'll regret it. You'll thank me someday. She sat in the front seat now, poised and tightly wound, watching reindeer holograms loop in the smog above the sports stadium. Some advertisements featured a skinny, smiling Santa, his gaunt cheeks too red, teeth far too white. Neat teeth, Sienna thought. Baby teeth. Sienna tapped her own with a fingernail. She turned from the window. Ma, are teeth just skeletons sticking out? What a question. Yes, love, replied her father as he steered the cruiser into a tunnel, toll beepers flaring, overhead fluorescence turning into a string of ruby and white, Coca-Cola branding. Sienna smiled. She'd processed information about the drink at school. The little girl nodded, content, for now. Her fingers itched around her face, sussing out the sculpture of her bones. Her snoozing brother beside her had lolling. Boys were icky, except Da, who got a free pass. Damien was two years her senior, not that many people could tell. Damien still wet the bed, forgot how to speak every now and then. Damien sometimes did a lot of things that other kids didn't. Sienna didn't think her brother would have to worry about getting too old, not like Nona, a fact she tried to ignore as best she could, and failed every time.
She sighed, shuffling in her seat, squinting as they flew from the tunnel and into the valley where trees no longer grew. Sienna hated this part. All those rocks and pebbles and cracks below like an almost dead beach breaking itself apart in search of water. Santa would have to wear his safety mask and goggles on his sleigh. The haze could kill anyone. Toxic had been one of Sienna's first words. Irritable, she triggered the concave depressors in her wrist, and the ring on her forefinger beamed a cat hologram across the back of her mother's seat. The cat licked its paw, glanced around as though a digital fly had flown by. Tweeny, she dubbed the cat on her birthday six trimesters ago. The name was a hug and didn't need to make sense. The cat wavered, static threatening. Stupid thing. Bad word, she thought, scrambling. Even in your head, someone's always listening. Silly thing. Better. Sienna hoped Santa brought her a new depressor. She hadn't asked for it, nor had she sent him correspondence as kids were supposed to. But he knew these things, right? Sienna had been a good girl this year. You had to be good, always. That's what they said. Tweeny followed its unseen distraction and leapt over her brother's sleeping face, seeming to scratch at his freckles before slicking across the interior of the windshield. Damn it, her father yelled, swerving with shock. Turn that off. Sienna, what have we told you about using that thing in here? Sorry. The eight-year-old deactivated the simulator and shrunk in her seat, a fast-blooming flower in reverse. Jesus. She almost said aloud, pocketing the word in the back of her brain instead, cushioning it between images of virtual reality horses and memories of Da saying he loved her drawings. The word was outlawed. Big time trouble there. Ma gave Sienna one of her glass-cutting stares. Enough of that, said Da, gripping the wheel. Damien. Wake up, we're here. Always the same stories as they approached the home. Da's voice loud in her ear through the microphone in Sienna's mask. When she was young, my mother used to make the best Christmas cake. We'd all look forward to it, he said, guiding them from where he docked the cruiser and through the haze. I miss it, you know. She'd always be singing, and when she didn't know the words, she made them up. Your uncles and I used to laugh over that. But there was nothing, and I mean nothing, that compared to how Nona danced. That was her job back in the day. Sienna held her brother's hand as they walked, drones projecting bird holograms over the haze, only the projector kept looping the footage in a clumsy time trip. She bit her lip, imagining what it must be like to be as old as those inside the nine-story building in front of them. Damien groaned at her side. That Nona ever danced 
seemed an impossible thing. There had never been a time in Sienna's life when her grandmother appeared younger than she was now. She recalled learning about insects trapped in amber in programming class, captured as they had died, young forever, and shuddered. A memory from the last visit. There in her pod recliner, industrial droids spinning their cogs to shovel slush into Nona's mouth. A grunt from the ancient woman. It spelled a bowel movement. The mess vacuumed through tubes in the seat. There hadn't been a smell, and that unnerved Sienna most. Where did the poop go? Into the empty spaces, maybe. That was where everything she couldn't see or remember or understood ended up. If you couldn't process it, it didn't exist. Doors to the home opened to let out the hospital air. Dust speckled Sienna's goggles. She rubbed them clear and caught her brother staring at her, sensed his disquiet. Once the doors slammed in a gasp of compressed gas, projections of fields and grazing cows resumed on the chrome walls. They slipped free of their masks after decontamination. Drawn-out moos echoed from speakers they couldn't see, and birdsong played too loud. It hurt Sienna's ears. Damien squeezed her hand. Drones zoomed down the corridor to greet them. Here we go, kids, Ma told them. Behave yourselves. Sienna did as she was told, and hoped Santa took note. With their identities approved and retinas scanned, the hologram of a woman in hospital scrubs blinked to life before them. She was too tall to pass as real. Like Santa on the billboards, her teeth were neat and crowded, white as the joints of the boiled chicken bones in the broth her mother made when Sienna was unwell. Sienna was often unwell. Merry Christmas to the... Dunlop Spruce, family, said the nurse, shifting her clipboard from under one arm to the other. Welcome to the home. We all hope your travels were safe and that you're not too tired. We've got a lovely event planned for you. Oh, yes. Well, now that we're all together, let's go find Eleanor Dunlop for you. The voice stating the names didn't match the rest of the hologram sentences, similar to an auditory cut and paste from one of Sienna's school sessions. A chill scuttled up her spine, playing bones that would grow out of her mouth like an instrument. Let's go, said the hologram nurse, cheery. Her feet didn't touch the ground when she walked. Still, the Dunlop Spruce family followed their guide down one of the home's gun barrel corridors, passing sealed rooms where the elderly were tended to, passing windows overlooking hologram fields, where hologram workers looked up from their picks to wave. Sienna felt the fake warmth from the screens on her face as she walked by. Maybe forgetting Nona is better? or melt the amber and set her free for good.
They didn't speak as they went, studying the hard walls that didn't reflect the light instead. Footfalls didn't echo either, like the building was designed to not absorb sound. Sienna hungered for Tweenie again, chasing her tail, toying with simulated balls of twine. Triggering the cat required no effort, and the temptation was right there. One meow to make Sienna happy, a flitter, a peekaboo to carry her through. Her brother would enjoy it as well, she thought. Damien's phlegmy breaths itched at her ears. His eyes were too dry, red. Here we are, Eleanor Dunlop is through here said the nurse with a giggle. She waved her hand over the door display. The portal widened in an expanding iris. Darkness on the other side. Have a lovely day, Dunlop Spruce, family. Happy New Year. I'll see you once the show is over. One by one, they filed into the theater, choosing front row seats before the stage. Blue velvet curtains ebbed on a breeze that shouldn't be there, the home being airtight as it was. This is like a cinema, Sienna heard her mother say. Remember them, Lottie? I think I do, Da said. But no, maybe, maybe I don't. Sienna turned in her seat to watch a holographic audience fade from the shadows of the dimly lit auditorium, cerulean shapes filing in and settling around them, wavering like cruiser headlights through steam in the city. She couldn't wait to get back to their apartment, to her room. Better to fold all this into the empty spaces again until next year with all the days of programming and weekends full of fun between. The auditorium filled, overlapping voices issuing from unseen speakers. A hush fell as those curtains drew back, wheels turning and the whisper of heavy material. An acute beat of excitement punched through Sienna, but then she remembered where she was, and how she'd felt last time they had been in this exact spot, about to see this exact same show. Memory turned her throat to sand, as those who had never lived applauded all around her. Da, I want to go, Sienna said. He didn't listen. He rarely did. Damien reached across the arm of his chair to snatch her leg, she felt him quivering. Sienna took his hand, boy ickiness evaporating, and saw a scared boy she sometimes loved as she was expected to. Voices receded. A chorus that didn't exist began to sing. Sienna recognized the tune. Come, all ye faithful. The hologram audience swayed in tune to the music, weeds in a tide tugged this way and that. Meanwhile, the Dunlop Spruce family remained motionless. Sienna stared, braced. Dry ice bloomed in the upper left hand of the stage, 
as Nona descended from above, swinging onto the floorboards. Jesus, Sienna whispered, not caring about the consequences. She knew all the naughty words. Memories were fluid in the empty spaces between visits, but turned to spears when drawn into the present. That sharpness pierced her now. Here we go, again. A machine Sienna thought of as the spider claw, not that she'd ever call it that aloud, conducted Nona's movements like a puppet master. Metal stilts clipped and clopped as the machine twirled the old woman in ways she could no longer manage on her own. Nona used to dance. That was how her father's story went. Year after year, every time they trundled to the home for Christmas, danced like you wouldn't believe. Pistons fired. Prongs eased Nona's head to the left, forcing her to arch, legs extending as the music swelled. She wore a gown of delicate lace. The spotlight illuminated the calligraphy of varicose veins between the hem. Sienna wondered where the red ballet shoes came from. Those were new. Bundles of wire constricted the old woman's arms, dragged her limbs into a pirouette. The spider claw spun on the end of its long arm and scuttled across the stage. Flawless programming. Smooth. Not at all like Tweeny with his twine and static. Sienna watched mouth open, and her family watched too. Damien's hand tightened on her own. She squeezed back. I'm here. The spider claw arched forward so they could see Nona's face through a crisscross of tubes and shadows, the music rising to a crescendo. Button-sized spades on the ends of needles inched from the metal halo around Nona's face to hook the insides of her mouth, drawing backwards to open the old woman's mouth like yet another theater curtain. A curtain of skin. Brackish gums. Sienna wondered if this was meant to be a smile. Nona's eyes locked with her granddaughter's, Tears on that wrinkled face. A moan, which might have been more than that, escaped her. Help me, said the old woman's look. Help me. Sienna tried to get out of her seat, but her mother pushed her down. You can't leave, she said. It's tradition. We have to stay. There's nothing wrong and Nona's fine. Look, see? She's dancing. Nona loves this. This is what Nona wants. Look at her, Ma. She doesn't want this. She hates it. This is for you and not her and... Sienna's protestations died in her mouth. Her brother pressed close and asked her not to leave. Sienna stared at the wet patch spreading across his crotch and almost said something but the audience laughed and clapped so loud nobody would hear. I want to disappear. Only no, 
They were forced to sit and watch the spider claw force Nona into arabesques, extending her arthritic fingers, pinching her toes beneath red shoes. A swan of a neck exposed to the light, and the hologram audience roared. Some stood, arms raised. They cast no shadows. I want to go to the right. Ma! To the left. Da! Only Da wasn't paying attention. His head was directed at the stage, eyes shut. It was difficult to tell from that angle, but Sienna thought he might be weeping. If I have to watch, then so do you. She wanted to scream at him. Who is this for, anyway? It's a trick. All of it, a trick. A trick on her. She hated him then. Wanted to reach across her brother and mother and slap him until he opened his eyes and admitted that everything about this was wrong. Nona doesn't dance anymore, duh. And you can't make her. Sienna didn't get a chance to say what she wanted to say or even finish her thought. Electricity crackled at the top of the stage behind the curtain, and sparks zipped like shooting stars she'd heard about in processing class, but had never seen in real life because of the smog. The spider claw jolted, and jolted Nona with it. Pinchers gripped her lips again for a show-stopping smile ahead of a curtsy, but withdrew too fast. Skin ripped free of its gums. Bright blood hit the stage under the spotlight. The metal halo tipped, pistons firing at the wrong angle this time. Instead of tilting Nona's head, it speared through her cheek and ripped the jaw clear off her face. It wasn't just the old woman's screams in the auditorium now. Sienna and her family joined in too, carolers of a different kind. Throughout, the hologram crowd continued to sway and cheer and sing and laugh. Da's eyes were open now. He leapt from his seat to clamber at the stage, shouting his mother's name, only to trip and strike his head. Nona's blood decorated the air as the spider claw twirled and bound, trying to complete the performance as automated. Only each of its movements mistimed. Wires pulled too tight. Hinges swung too far. The lacework of Nona's dress never stood a chance. It ripped as her old flesh ripped, all of it an apron of red upon red. Wetness splashed Sienna's face on her tongue. Ma tried to pull Da back, the two of them silhouetted against the sparks and clouds of smoke. She had never heard sounds like that from her mother, feral. Sienna watched Nona's skeleton pierce up through her flesh, the machine making mouths of her joints, and every one of those kisses had new teeth coming through, white spears that gnashed, that clicked. Damien let his sister go and ran. Take me with you, 
Sienna ached to say to him. Only she couldn't form the words. Couldn't move at all. Not to escape or get help. Not even to wipe the blood dribbling down her face. It was as though, like Nona, Sienna were held in place by a machine, crafted by flickering light and dark and tradition that wouldn't budge. They had come here to see Nona dance. I have to be here. Blood tasted salty. Come, all ye faithful, ended, curtain falling. Nona rose into the rafters, up where the light couldn't reach. The pitter-patter of gore dripping over a hardwood stage. Electricity. The holograms. Ghosts of those who never were, stood. Gathered hats to shield them from suns that would never burn them, and picked up coats that would keep chills from non-existent bones. They marched out some fading, and others blinking into nothing. All the lights died. Screams. Damien thumped in the dark somewhere. She heard his cries. Sienna almost depressed the simulator on her wrist that she wanted replaced, for illumination, if nothing else. She didn't, though. It just wouldn't be right. Tweeny. Stupid tweeny who didn't really work anymore wasn't worth the risk. Da might turn on her, his face busted open from where he'd struck the stage, lashing out as he sometimes did, his scolding whittling her down to size, down to nothing. So she sat there, watching everything play out, trying to be a good girl, because Santa was watching. That was Aaron Dry's Nona Doesn't Dance, as read by Crystal Hammond. Crystal Hammond is a narrator, writer, cancer survivor, and non-binary queer human. They grew up in rural North Carolina, nurtured by a steady diet of local Blackbeard legends and Confederate ghost stories. These nuggets of folktale and myth fostered a lifelong love of storytelling and all the drama that goes with it. They also have a master's degree in biological anthropology and adore ugly cats. Feel free to check out their narration website at crystalhammond.com or find them on Twitter at the KM Hammond. Thank you, Crystal. Finally, we reached the end of our Stoker-nominated tales, and the winner of this year's Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in Short Fiction, a tale from the twisted mind of Mercedes M. Yardley. Mercedes M. Yardley is a Bram Stoker and Stabby award-winning dark fantasist who wears poisonous flowers in her hair. She writes in a lush, lyrical style about current social issues and finds love and beauty in the darkness. She authored such works as Darling, A 
Apocalyptic Montessa and Nuclear Lulu, A Tale of Atomic Love, Little Dead Red, and Love is a Crematorium. Mercedes lives and works in Las Vegas. You can find her at mercedesmyardley.com. Listen with me, children of the night, to Mercedes M. Yardley's Stoker Award-winning Fracture, first published in Mother Tales of Love and Horror by Weird Little Words Press, October 2022. Layla fell in love with a man made of glass. His hands were jagged, but his lips were smooth and cool to the touch. He slipped into her bedroom in the evenings, invisible to the naked eye, and when they made love, he refracted the light into rainbows. Something magical happened. Layla's belly grew, and she felt something exquisite and frightening moving around inside. She held her glass lover's hand, and he kissed her fingers, and her temple and her cheek and her face, before putting his mouth close to her stomach. Little one, he said, and his voice sounded like the wind blowing through a flute. There are so many wondrous things to see, but the world is dangerous to our kind. Take after your mother and be flesh and bone, for I wish you to be strong and experience the world. He turned to Layla, his clear eyes sparkling in the candlelight. I will be your husband if you will have me, he said, and when Layla wept in joy, her colorless tears looked like glass themselves. But a love affair with a glass man isn't tenable. Layla's father stormed in, demanding to know who had soiled her, because he had wealthy suitors lined up for miles around. They won't marry you if you're with child, he said. His eyes glowed in a way quite unlike her lover's. They want a woman unsullied. But if we can perhaps rectify your mistake. He took his walking stick with its thick silver handle and struck her once. Layla cried out in a voice piercing enough to shatter wine glasses. Her father raised it a second time and brought it down hard. Enough! cried her lover, who stood glistening in the corner. He raced to defend his beloved and grabbed the cane in his fragile hands. A demon, Layla's father cried and swung the cane wildly. There was a sound like a mirror shattering. There was a sound like a crystal snifter dropping. There was a sound, and then another, as Layla stood in an explosion of glass shards and wailed. Layla, her father called, but she gathered her skirts and ran from him, her feet cut and ripped by the broken glass on the ground. Glass embedded itself in her feet, and she left footprints of blood as she fled deep into the night. 
Crystal was fine and young and smooth and completely translucent. Her young legs were long, and her hair fell down her back in tinkling waves. Her heart was red and made of organic muscle just like her mother's. It pulsed and throbbed and beat through her clear chest. Be careful, Layla told her wearily. You mustn't fall. I know, mother. You mustn't jar or crack or break. I'm being very careful. You must be wary of extreme temperatures. Of course. Her mother's eyes went far away, as they often did, and Crystal knew she was thinking of her father. She wouldn't speak much of him, except to say that he had come to a bad end, and that's why she and Layla lived alone in the forest, where nobody could bump into them. Their tiny house was surrounded by soft grasses and clover. Layla went outside daily, removing rocks and wayward branches. There was nothing for Crystal to shatter her toe on. You must be careful, for I cannot heal you, her mother said, and tended to her own feet. They were gnarled with wounds that never quite seemed to heal, shards of something shiny constantly worrying under her skin. When she walked, she moved as though she was stepping on knives, but she touched the tender scars gently and with a strange kind of love. Crystal sighed. She was tired of being swaddled in knitted wraps like an infant. She wanted to shed the extra layers and run free in the woods, to dip her hands in the brook and become like a river rock. She wanted to reflect the sunlight like a prism and see what a town square looked like and do all the things her mother forbade. If I could just climb a tree, Crystal began. You're so precious, Layla said. More precious than a diamond. More precious than the glass slipper of a princess. Mother, I want to go to school. I want to have friends. I'm so very lonely. Her mother kissed her forehead dreamily, and Crystal closed her eyes. Lonely, yes, she murmured to Crystal. But you are unbroken. Is there anywhere else that is safe? Somewhere that isn't here? Perhaps we could travel there, mother. I've thought of taking you to the sea, child. It's miles and miles of open water with nothing to shatter against. But it's far away, and the journey is too dangerous, and the sea is so vast. It was so large that a small glass girl, slippery from the water, could wriggle from her mother's grasp and float far, far away. It was Layla's nightmare, but Crystal's dream. She was safe and she was loved, but that wasn't enough. One night when the moon was full and the air was as clear as Crystal herself, she donned her warmest cloak and fled into the night. She ran like a rabbit. She ran like a stream. She ran like her mother so many years ago, her human heart thumping against her fragile ribs, her legs shining in the dark. While her mother had carried a precious unborn child of glass, Crystal carried her fragile human heart. It wasn't easy for a glass girl in a city. There were cobblestones to trip on and carriages that ran past. Crystal's pinky finger was caught in a door and broke off in the jam. Her tears plink, plink, plinked as they fell and shattered on the ground. 
Children hurried to collect them before they broke, sucking on them like candy. Who are you? One of the children asked. He squatted next to a dirty alley. Why do you look so strange? My name is Crystal, she answered. I come from the forest. Are you a witch? A little girl wondered. Are you a fairy? I'm a girl, just like you, she said. You're nothing like us, a boy told her, grabbing her arm. You're strange, and I can see right through you. Even your skin feels different. Please don't, she said and stepped away. But he pushed her against the stone wall so roughly that she heard two of her vertebrae crush. Are you see-through everywhere? He asked. He yanked her cloak off. The other children began to tug at her simple clothes. Stop, she cried. Leave me alone. Fabric tore, and Crystal stood there in the sunlight, covering herself with invisible hands. Her vulgar human heart was glutted with transparent blood, a pumping clump of arteries and muscle. Her heart looks like something dead, the boy said, and his face was white. Disgusting, a child cried and reached down to pick up a stone. Go away, never come back. The stone flew past Crystal's head and hit the alley wall. She stood still, staring in shock, until another stone hit her in the shoulder. She heard a crunching of glass, the sound of fragile bones breaking. The children whooped as she fled, holding her tattered clothes around her. Rocks hit the dirt at her feet, occasionally pelting her body, and the glass bruised in spiderweb cracks. Layla searched for her daughter. She searched every inch of the cottage, looking for the telltale signs of light rainbowing over the walls or reflecting against the ceiling. Crystal wasn't to be found. Had she been stolen like a jewel? Had somebody slipped her from bed during the night? Had she left on her own because she was so unbearably lonely? What do I do? Layla said aloud. She held a glass drop in her hand, a piece of her lover that had once been sharp and brittle, but time and the constant rubbing from her warm fingers had turned it smooth. I must find her. She kissed the glass drop and tucked it into a little pocket sewn inside her dress next to her heart. Layla gathered her things. It didn't take long, for she didn't have much. Anxiety swelled and bloomed like a bloodstain inside of her chest as she set out on her journey. The world is so terribly cruel to those who are fragile. Crystal believed in beauty and kindness with her whole beating heart. Surely those children were exceptionally ill-tempered, and everyone else would be better. It was not to be. A glass girl, just like a regular girl, can be coveted and kept on a shelf. Greedy hands caught in her hair and broke it off in clumps. She was pawed and pushed to her knees with a sound like pottery falling. A girl with a glass jaw only needs one good punch to crush it permanently and it's impossible to hide your damaged face behind hands when they're transparent. Crystal ran from the city, ran from the forest, ran until she was good and lost and exhausted and miserable. She wandered until she came to a strange blue horizon that smelled of salt. She collapsed in the sand and heard strange birds calling overhead when she fell asleep. She wept for most birds were drawn to shiny things. 
Layla followed the dusty road to the city, where she found a group of children playing with wooden swords. Her eyes were drawn to a familiar blue cloak. You there, she said, and grabbed the cloaked child by the scruff of the neck. Where did you come by my daughter's robe? That thing was your daughter? the child asked. Layla struggled to keep her fists from clenching. Tell me where she is, or you will regret it, Layla vowed. I don't know. She ran away a long time ago. Let go of me. The child wiggled out of her grasp and scurried away. The sea is a beautiful rough thing, gorgeous and unyielding. It makes no promises. It refuses to compromise. When something shattered and fragmented crawls into its waters, a metamorphosis happens. The sea took this glass child, this ruined girl, and ran its sea-foam hands over her broken parts. It seeped into every crack, every vein, mouthing at the dirt caught inside. Can you put me back together? Crystal asked. That is not what I do, the sea hissed. It was busy creating whirlpools and causing carnage. The sea rose with sunken ships in its hair and paused for admiration. What can you do then? Crystal asked. I transform, child, the sea said, and it lapped at Crystal's cracked feet. Come. Crystal thought of her mother, and this gave her courage. She slid under the ocean waves, and it began. The sea tumbled and tossed and buffeted. Loose pieces fell away, and her meaty human heart was fed to the fishes. Her loneliness and longing wore away like the rest of her, riding the waves and turning into foam. At last, she thought, I am happy. It matters not, answered the sea. Layla searched the land tirelessly. She looked in cities and towns and villages. She looked in the forest and in the deserts. Her tender, raw feet grew calloused from her travels, pushing the precious glass shards even further into her body. Each painful step was an exquisite reminder of him. Her hair grayed and her back stooped, but each thought of a little glass girl rejuvenated her. She climbed through tall grasses and tripped over roots. She eventually came to a place that smelled of salt and tears. The sea. Each footstep in the sand felt heavy, but the water glittered and glistened like two loves long lost. Layla touched her lover's glass drop through the pocket in her dress. She neared the water, pulling off her shoes and wading into the waves. The sand gave way beneath her. What do you want? asked the sea. I am busy. I'm looking for my daughter, Layla said. She had never spoken to the sea before. She disappeared many years ago. Daughters often disappear, the sea sniffed. I've taken many of them myself. So easy to lose, daughters. She is beautiful. She's made of glass. The sea capsized several ships while it thought. Layla sighed and fell to her knees. The water swirled around her. It's possible to love something too much, 
the sea told her. It caressed her legs with green weeds. You can love something to pieces. I'm afraid that's what I've done, Layla admitted. Her tears, when they fell, weren't glass at all. They were bitter and salty, and the sea opened its mouth to taste them. Tastes like me, the sea commented, and something washed onto the sand. A treasure of the deep, a gift from the universe. Layla reached out for it with a small sound. It was a piece of sea glass, its rough edges worn smooth by years in the ocean. Layla picked it up and it thrummed in her hand. Crystal, she whispered, and held the glass to the sun. It had turned milky over time and no longer reflected light like a prism, but seemed to capture it and hold it within. She said she was happy. The sea said offhandedly and flowed away. It had fish to spawn and currents to follow. The short lives of humans meant very little in the vastness of the universe. Layla took the shiny piece of glass from her pocket and held them both, lover and daughter, in her gnarled hand before clenching them to her heart. She lay back in the sand, the sun warming her old bones as the water lapped around her. She was happy, Layla repeated and closed her eyes. The waves crept higher. That was all I ever wanted. Layla didn't turn into mermaid's tears like her lover and daughter. Her flesh became a feast for monsters of the deep, and her bones were picked clean and worn as hairpins by the sea itself. But the human heart, made of muscle and meat, is such a funny thing. Even after it's consumed and turned into energy that powers mighty tails and tiny fins and microscopic cilia, it still manages to beat, beat, beat under the ocean waves with everything else that is precious. That was Mercedes M. Yardley's Stoker Award-winning Fracture, as read by Nicole Swanson. Nicole Swanson is an actor and producer from Augusta, Georgia, who has discovered she loves hiding away in her closet and telling stories to her loyal companion, Blackjack the Studio Dog. An occupational therapist in the Georgia Corrections System, when not narrating, Nicole enjoys a good cup of coffee while sitting on her porch swing and listening to the rain on a dark and stormy night. Discover more of Nicole's adventures at NicoleSwansonVO.com Thank you, Nicole. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, 
Lessel Baxter, Orion D. Hegra, and Paul Belcher, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we pierce the veil with more Tales to Terrify. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.